Well, when looking at Psalm 48, one writer that I read this week drew a really helpful comparison to the story of another famous city and its king. So I'm wondering this morning, how many of you remember the story of Arthur and Camelot? You guys know what I'm talking about? Is that still a thing? I'm judging by the blank expressions that either you haven't had coffee or you just totally, okay, I think we know who Camelot is. Well, the story of Camelot goes all the way back to the 12th century, we think. During this period when it started to come about, this was a period of feudalism, of lots of fighting and instability. And in the midst of that, there emerged this tale about a city where the great king Arthur lived. And this city, this Camelot, was a place of safety, of stability and security. And this city became a symbol of a place where all that is right and good dwells. A place where Arthur the king rules with justice and goodness. It's a city and a people filled with joy and peace and glory. And for nine centuries now, the story of Camelot, its people, and its king has captured our imaginations and thrilled our hearts. So we got to ask, why is that? Why has this story lasted so long and why does it resonate with each successive generation? It's because there's something deep in our hearts that longs for a city like that. As the writer I mentioned earlier said, there's something deep down in our bones that longs for a place and for a people that are safe and secure. A place where there's peace and justice. A place where there's glory. A place where the king rules with justice. In other words, he says, our hearts actually long for Zion. For blessed Zion as described here in Psalm 48. The reality is, we don't want Camelot. We want an even better, an even greater city. A city whose king rules with even more power and more goodness and more justice than Arthur. And the answer to our heart's longing is Zion. It's not a story, it's a reality. And here in Psalm 48, we are given a picture of this city of the great king. But even though the psalm is going to be about the city of Zion, what we find in the psalm is that what makes this city so magnificent is Zion's king, who lives and rules in the city. The very first lines of this psalm give us this focus. So just look at verse 1 with me. It starts off, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So we see right out of the bat, the psalm is about the greatness of God the king. But it's specifically about his greatness as it shines forth in and from his city. So we're going to be looking this morning at a glorious city and that city's great king. We're going to look at four truths about this glorious city of the great king. So here's an outline if you're following along this morning. Four things we see. First, in 1 to 3, we'll see the king is present in the city. In verses 4 to 8, the king is protector of the city. And in verses 9 to 11, the king is praised by the city. And finally, in verses 12 to 14, we'll see the king is proclaimed to 
the city's future citizens. So let's start our look at Zion and back in verse 1. Read there with me. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Okay, let's stop there. So the first thing we see when we read these verses is we've got a place, right? Let's, let's not overcomplicate it. Let's start with what we know. We've got a place, and it's called by several names in these verses. The city of our God, his holy mountain, Mount Zion, city of the great king. So we've got to ask, what is this place? What is this place called Zion? And what we see is that it's a city on a mountain where God's holy and anointed king lives and rules. Now, this is important because this mountain city of the great king is key to the storyline of the whole Bible. So let me make sure we know just how it fits into the big picture of the Bible story. So first, let me tell you about the mountain. See, in the beginning of the Bible, God created man and woman and put them in a garden called Eden. This garden was on a mountain. Now, how do we know that? Well, Ezekiel 28 talks about this place, and it says that it's both Eden, the garden of God, as well as on the holy mountain of God, saying that Eden is the same as this holy mountain of God. And on this mountain is where God the king would meet with his people. Now, fast forward through a lot of stuff. Later in 2 Samuel 5 is the very first time in our Bibles we come across this thing called Zion. And when it's mentioned there, King David conquers a city called Jerusalem. And in it, it has a stronghold of Zion. So now we've got Zion connected to this city. And eventually David's son, who is also a king, builds a temple on a mountain adjacent to the city, kind of absorbing the mountain into the city. So now, just so you're tracking, Jerusalem is a city on a holy hill where both God's earthly king, Solomon, dwells, as well as where his temple is, where God the king meets with his people. Now fast forward again. By the time of the prophets, Isaiah foretells about the significance of this mountain city. Listen to Isaiah 2. Isaiah said, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we see already that there's a mountain in the beginning where there's a king who meets with his people. Then there's a place called Zion that becomes part of Jerusalem where the earthly king as well as God the king dwells in the midst of his people. And it's foreshadowed that one day all the nations are going to stream to this highest of mountains because out of Zion shall go forth the teaching, the instruction of how to walk in God's ways. Now we come to the New Testament. There, in his Sermon on the Mount, 
we find Jesus calling his followers what? A city on a hill. Hebrews 12 goes on to tell us that Zion is not just something for Old Testament saints. It's not just a a thing of the past. Hebrews 12 says, but you, talking to Christians, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, as we gather to worship like this, in one sense, we are already coming to Zion as the people of God gather. But in another sense, the true city of God is yet to come. And then we come to the very end of the Bible. And what do we find there? We find the Apostle John being carried away, where? To a great high mountain and shown the holy city of Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this mountain city is where King Jesus will dwell with his people forever. So from beginning to end, there's this emphasis on this mountain city of the great king. And all throughout the Bible, we see that this focus is on Mount Zion, this holy mountain, the city of the great king, and that's what's being celebrated in our psalm this morning. Now, while it's being spoken of in glowing terms here, what we're meant to notice is that what makes the city so great is the king who is present there. Notice all the way it describes it. It says it's beautiful, it's holy, but we got to remember it's beautiful because God is beautiful. It's holy because God is holy. Because of the one who's in there, God's beauty makes it beautiful. God's holiness makes it holy. The king's presence is what makes this city safe and glorious. Verse 2 says that it's beautiful in elevation. Now you might read that, and Isaiah uses language like that. It's the highest of the mountains. Now if you know anything about world geography or topography, I'm not even sure what to call it, you know that that's not the highest mountain in the world. So what does that mean? Well, he's not speaking literally in terms of altitude. It's the highest. What makes Zion the highest is its significance. And its significance is that it's the place where God's presence can be known and experienced. No other mountain in the world can claim that. Therefore, in that sense, it is the highest of all the mountains. Now, what I don't want you to miss this morning as we walk through this psalm is that when this psalm talks about Zion, it's not only talking about a place. It is. But it's also talking about a people. In fact, to be specific, it's talking about the church. The place where God the King now dwells. In 1 Peter 2, we get hints of this, right? If you remember from when we went through Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 5, God says... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. So something's being built in this Zion. And this cornerstone, if you remember, is Jesus. But he's not the only stone, right? We who come to him, it says, are being built up like living stones as a spiritual house in which God dwells. So now you've got this city being built, this house, this place where God the King is dwelling. And that's going to factor in all morning long. So I want to make sure you see that. But here I want to see how does that reality help us apply what we just read in verses 1 to 3. How does knowing that this Zion is also us, the church, how does that help us? 
I think there's three ways we can apply verses 1 to 3. First, what makes the church beautiful and secure and glorious is not the people in it. It's the king who is present in our midst. He's what makes this people, this community, different. We are holy because he is holy. All that's beautiful and good about the church is simply the greatness of our king shining forth in and through this city on a hill. So my admonition to us this morning is love the church. We ought to love this city, love the church, but always realize that everything lovely about the city is found in the king who dwells among us. Second, notice that it's not the strength of the city that the people are looking to for safety and refuge. Did you catch that? Verse 3 says, within her citadels, those are like strong towers, so it's pointing at them saying, within these strong towers, God has made himself known as a fortress. So they're pointing, they're, they're pointing in the midst of the towers. They're not saying within these towers we have a fortress. Like this is our protection. He's saying, no, no, no. Yes, we're in the walls, but that's not what we're looking to for safety and security. What we're looking to is the king. He is what makes this people safe. The city's not impregnable on its own. God is the fortress. So how would we apply that to us? Simple. Don't look for safety and refuge just by going to church. In fact, I'll put, put it one step further. Don't look for safety or refuge just by being part of a church. The only real refuge we have is in Jesus. In the church, he's made himself known as our fortress. So don't trust the people. Don't trust the church. Trust the king. Run to him. Don't trust in Zion. Trust in the great king of Zion. Third, and this one is huge. This is actually, I think, the main thrust of these verses. The king is present with his people. Friends, do you understand what that's saying? That our God is present with us. He's not a distant God who will occasionally check your social media pages to see how you're doing or every so often shoot you a text to, to check in. He is here. Like really here. Right now. Let that sink in. We're not just in a building thinking about something that's way far off. Right now our king is in our midst. Whatever you might be going through this morning, let that be a comfort to you. Your king is here with you. Earlier this week, I had the, the privilege and the joy to get to visit Susan, to visit Susan Hampton this week. And the two things she made crystal clear in our conversation as she's facing her last days, that she, I mean, she just kept going back to over and over again. One, our God is so good. I don't know how many times she said that. He's just so good. And secondly, he's been with her. Those two things, right now, as she's getting ready to meet the king, what she's holding on to, what's sustaining her, what's giving her peace and joy is that her king is good and her king is with her. 
And that's not just true for Susan, friends. That's true for you if you are in Christ. So friends, notice that Zion is so glorious because our king is present in the city. Now, so far, we've seen only one perspective of Zion. To this point in the psalm, it's been depicted as a joyful, a beautiful city filled with the glorious praises of the great king. If we stopped here, you'd think that's, that's how everybody sees it. But starting in verse 4, we'll see a very different perspective on the same city. As I was thinking about this transition, this uh, juxtaposition of two, two ways of seeing it, it reminded me of last, last week when I was on vacation, I went tubing. And when people are tubing, you can tell how they feel about tubing based on how they react to seeing large waves coming at them as they're on the tube. Now, I love tubing. And so when I see those big waves coming, my eyes light up and I get excited because that's when it's about to get fun. Like, you're going to go shooting through the air. You're going to get slammed around. And I think that's fun. So my eyes light up and I get excited and I'm probably thinking in my head, oh, yes, oh, yes. However, I will not name names, but there are people with whom I have tubed in years past who have been on the tube, seen those same waves, and had a very different look on their face. Their eyes were wide in terror, and rather than being jubilant and excited, I think their mouths were saying something like, oh no. Same waves, two very different responses, all depending on how you felt about tubing. The same way, In verse 4, we'll see the kings of the earth look at the same city we've been looking at in verses 1 to 3. But rather than joy and worship, they're going to have a very different response. So look with me at verse 4. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Okay, let's stop there. So we've got these kings, these mighty and powerful rulers. They get together. They band together. They form this coalition, united against Zion and Zion's king. They, they do not like this city or its king. So they combine all their strength, all their resources, and they're going to wage war and attack this city. When it says they come on together, the image is like marching in battle formations. So this would have been terrifying. This is like in Lord of the Rings when they look out and see these hordes of orcs marching toward them, these evil, wicked, strong enemies. And there's just so many. And they're all unified against you. The picture here is similar to another place in Psalms. In Psalm 2, there we read, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So just like in Psalm 48, same picture. The kings of the world, they're conspiring together to oppose God and his king. This is a fierce enemy and this is massive opposition. So is God worried? I mean, I would be if I looked out. 
Is God worried? Should his people be worried? Let's see what Psalm 2 says after that. As these kings who've taken counsel together, as they come on ready to overthrow the king, Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That means he mocks them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. At even the strongest of enemies, God simply laughs at their efforts to come against him and his people. He's he's not threatened. He's not intimidated. He's just, (laughs) are you kidding me? But he does more than laugh. He speaks to his enemies in his wrath and he terrifies them in his fury. And what was it that he said that was so terrifying to them? Like what was it that came out of the mouth of God that had them quaking? He said, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, because my king, because the great king is in Zion protecting the city, those enemies were terrified. They didn't realize what they were up against. Well, guess what happens in Psalm 48? As this mighty horde of enemies approaches to attack, I don't know if they come around to bend or they finally get close enough, but suddenly the city comes into view. And look how these enemies of God respond. It says they were astounded or astonished. They were in panic. They took to flight. Because whatever they saw, it terrified them. Because when they looked, rather than seeing just another city that they were going to trample over the way they'd done every other city, they saw a city that was unconquerable because of the king that protected it. And when they saw his power and his might and his glory at work on behalf of his city, they were simply undone. The psalm then gives us two pictures of their panic. In verse 6, it says they trembled in anguish like a woman in labor. The picture is that when they see the king who's coming against them in that moment, there's just like when labor pains come on and a woman is writhing in pain, that's what they're saying has happened. It's all of a sudden it just seizes them. And all they can think about is the pain they're feeling in that moment. Verse 7 then adds the picture of a shipwreck at sea in the midst of a violent storm. What they're saying is in the storm of the king's wrath, the enemy was shattered. And those ships mentioned here, the ships of Tarshish, these were the biggest and strongest ships of the day. The point in using those ships is that even the biggest and strongest enemies are no match for God's power. Because the king is a powerful protector of his city. No enemy can stand against him. And friends, the good news for us This is the king who protects us. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord, strong and mighty. He is the Lord, mighty in battle. This king is more powerful than the greatest of enemies. In fact, our king has already defeated our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And because of that, he's able to guard and protect your soul against every enemy you will face. Whether it be a sin that you just can't kick. Whether it be deep discouragement and despondency. Whether it be painful hurts that others have caused you. 
whether it be anger that threatens to consume you from the inside out, or whether it's a sorrow that feels simply unending, or a persecution that is waged against you because you are a follower of Jesus, or even an apathy and a lukewarmness that you just can't snap out of. Your king is more powerful than every enemy you'll face. And he is present in our midst to protect you and help you. Now what I don't want you to miss here is the two contrasting responses to the king and his city. For those who oppose the king, they see this city as an impenetrable fortress keeping them out and they are terrified by the king and his wrath. But for those who trust in the king, they find him to be a refuge and his city to be a place where the king offers them joy and protection in his presence. And notice there are only two choices. Either you are in the city by faith in Jesus or you are outside the city living in opposition to the king. Where are you this morning? Are you in the city? Have you run to Jesus as your fortress? Is he your safe place, your protection? Or are you outside the city still waging war against him? What you do with King Jesus will determine whether Zion is the most beautiful, joy-filled city imaginable to you or a source of unspeakable panic and terror because the king is the protector of the city. Now before we move on to the next section, something really significant happens in verse 8. Look there with me. It says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. See, what happens here is these citizens of Zion, they'd heard the stories of how God had protected his city in the past. They'd been told them probably time and time again by their parents and their grandparents about the king's great acts of deliverance and help and provision. They knew these stories inside out. They were just part of life to them. But God's presence and protection weren't just stories from the past for them. Because they not only heard about them, they'd also seen for themselves in the city of their God. They weren't just things that had been recounted to them. They were things that they had experienced firsthand. They, they themselves had experienced the king's powerful presence. They'd seen his kindness on display. They'd witnessed his saving work. And they've beheld his glory with their own eyes in the city. And because of that, notice where it leads them. Now they have every confidence that because their king, here he's called the Lord of Armies, because their king dwells there, this city is going to be established forever. In other words, nothing will ever be able to destroy this city. And friends, we too can have that same confidence. Because we haven't only heard stories of what God's done in the past. 
We're not a historical society in the church, simply researching and recounting what's happened in years gone by. No, we've seen and experienced his power at work among his people today, haven't we? Haven't we? We've seen him give people new life. We've seen him grant us repentance to turn away from those sins that would destroy us. We've seen him change us. You're not the same as you were a year ago. We've seen him grow us in holiness. We've seen him protect us from division and to give us a genuine love for each other. Friends, there is so much that God has done and we've not just heard about it as tales from yesteryear. We've seen it. Because Jesus, our King, has defeated our enemies on the cross and because we've seen firsthand that he is alive and at work, we have confidence that nothing will ever destroy his church. No one can snatch us out of his hand. It will be established forever, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when you have a king like this, you can't help but praise him. And that's what we see in verses 9 to 11. The king is praised by the city. Look there. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Okay, in these these verses, we see four reasons why the king is praised by the city. First, he's praised because of his steadfast love. This God has covenanted with his people to show them his steadfast love And he has always been faithful to that covenant. He's never stopped loving them, even when they were really unlovable. They've seen his love displayed time and time again in his care for them. He's rescued them, helped them, provided for them, protected them. Why? All because of his steadfast love. And we praise our king for the same reason. Now, nowhere is this steadfast love more evident than on the cross. Because there, our King, King Jesus, loved us and gave himself for us. Even though we had sinned against him and we had failed our King, as we sang earlier, in thought, word, and deed, he showed his love by dying for us while we were yet sinners. Jesus died to make you and I citizens of Zion, where we are safe and secure in his love. And where we can experience the joy of his presence. Now in part. But one day in full. But I want to be clear that while we see his steadfast love most clearly on the cross. We don't only see it in the cross. Friends, we see the steadfast love of God in 10,000 ways, don't we? In providing for our needs. In giving us a church family. In an encouraging text from a friend. In having Bibles that we can read and understand. In giving us the Holy Spirit. In giving us peace and suffering. And joy in the midst of sorrow. In getting coffee with a fellow believer and knowing they care about you. In time we can spend praying together like tonight. We could go on and on. In fact, consider today. What are some of the thousands of ways God has shown his steadfast love to you? It's a great, way, great thing to do later this afternoon. Just consider that. What are the thousands of ways God has shown his steadfast love to you particularly? 
and to us as a church corporately. That's what we do in the city of God. We think on his steadfast love and we praise him for it. Second, the king is praised because he is king of all the earth. When it says, as your name, O God, that means like as your name deserves or as is worthy of your name, as is appropriate with your name. God's name is not just uh, a moniker, not just what he's called, it's who he is and what he's done. And because of his greatness and his glory, his name deserves to be worshipped everywhere. And so it is fitting, it's saying, that his praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Because we know now that our King Jesus has made Zion a global city. A city made up of citizens from every tribe, nation, language, and people. He is worthy of praise to the ends of the earth because his name is the name above all names and the only name by which we are saved. Third, the king is praised in the city because his power is righteous power. That's what it means there when it says your right hand is filled with righteousness. Right hand was a a way of talking about a, a ruler or someone's power. You talk about their right hand. God delivered them with a mighty right hand. It's with his power. So what it's saying is that the king here is not just powerful. He's righteous in how he uses his power. He's not a tyrant. He's not a harsh dictator. He is almighty, but he uses his power in only ways that are good and right. He rules with justice. That's how our king rules over us. And fourth, the king is praised because of his judgments against his enemies. He is worthy of praise because he defeated all the foes who seek to destroy his people. Because of that, his people here are safe and they no longer have to fear any evil. Therefore, his people are glad and they rejoice in their king. Similarly, because Jesus has already defeated our greatest enemies, we too no longer have anything to fear. Do you realize that? We no longer have anything to fear. Our sin cannot condemn us. Satan has no power over us. And death is simply the doorway to Zion. That's why we can be glad and rejoice because of our king's judgments. So because of his steadfast love, his worldwide reign, his righteous power, and his victorious judgments, the king is praised by the city. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. The king is proclaimed to the city's future citizens. Look at verses 12 to 14 with me. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Here, what the writer does is he tells the citizens of Zion to go explore the city. He says, go ahead, wander around. Walk around and really look at it. Take it in. Notice everything. Count each one of those towers. See how many there are. Consider how strong and secure the king has made this city. Take note of all the evidence you see of God's presence in the city. 
And why are they to do this? Why, why are they to spend so much time noticing every detail and piece of evidence of God's presence in the city? Why are they to do it? That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. Citizens of Zion are to take careful note of all that God has done and all the ways his presence is seen in his city so that they can tell the next generation about this great God and tell them, this great God that I'm telling you about, he's our God forever and ever. So what does this have to do with us? Here's how we can apply this. In your relationships in the church, go explore the city. You are the city. Go explore Spend time here and ask, what great things has God done? Take note and number how many times he's shown himself faithful and kind. Reflect on how beautiful and strong the city he's built is. Just wander around. Get to know the people you don't know well. Ask them, say, inform me. Show me what your tower in the city looks like. What has God done there? How has he shown himself good and strong and kind? And does the more you do it, number them, record it, make a mental note. Why are we doing this? So we can tell the next generation about our God. Citizens of Zion are to tell the next generation that this city is safe and strong and glorious and it will never perish. Why? Because the king of this city is our God forever and ever. We are to proclaim to the next generation that our security is in God. Zion is a joyful and glorious city because the king is present in the city, because he's a protector of the city, and because of that he's worthy of being praised by the city that he's building. So as we close here, friends, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Like Abraham, we are looking forward to the city that has foundations, to the city whose builder and designer is God. We long for the day when the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's what awaits us, Christian. So Chapelwood, Let's rejoice that through Jesus, we've been made citizens of this Zion. And the great king of the city is our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever all the way home to Zion. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that you have made us citizens through faith in your son of this glorious city we read about in Psalm 48. Father, we know that all of us are unworthy to be called citizens, and yet that is what you've made us. So now as we move to the table to celebrate that, God, would you, would you cause joy and gratitude and wonder to bubble up in our hearts afresh at the wonder of this city that awaits us? God, would, would it captivate us afresh? Would it thrill our imaginations as we think of what we've already come to and even more, what awaits us. So God, we thank you that we can look forward to that only because of your son and his work on our behalf. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So at this time, let me invite the servers to come forward as we do turn our focus to the Lord's Supper.
as they're coming. Got two. We got two more servers. Here we go. Um, as they're coming, I think this ties in really well to what we saw in Psalm 48. Because in Psalm 48, if you remember, they looked back. They recounted how God had delivered the city. They said, we've seen you. You've destroyed the enemies. You've taken care of them. And that because of that, right now, we have confidence in you, God, and what you're going to do. And they looked forward to those saying, but we know there's, there's something more coming. Well, guess what we do at the table? We look back. We look back in amazement and wonder at what God has done in giving us his son, that the king actually came and laid down his life, that his body was pierced and his blood poured out for us so that we could be made citizens of the kingdom, so that our rebellion would be forgiven and rather than wiped out and destroyed like the ships of Tarshish that we deserve to be, instead he welcomes us inside the walls and says, welcome home. But we don't just look back. We also, it gives us confidence in the moment that right now, your king is present with you. Your king is your protector. He will guard your soul against every enemy. And so that gives you strength and surety, stability to stand in this gospel. But we also look forward. Because just like there was a greater Zion coming, there's a much, much better meal coming for us. When, when we get to Zion, Fully and finally we will gather and we will feast together in Zion. And so we eat this meal in gratitude of what's happened, in confidence in what God is doing right now for us, and in sure hope for what he will do in the days to come. So let me pray, and then the servers will be at either side here. You're welcome to come whenever as we sing this next song. And we just reflect and celebrate on the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this table and all that it reminds us of. Thank you for your son's body and blood which were given for us so that we could belong to you. Thank you that though we were enemies, you sent the king to die for us. And now you welcome us in as children, as citizens, and fellow heirs. God, would you help us to savor the forgiveness that we have as we come to this table. I pray that it would be a fresh sweetness today for many. I pray for those who are dealing with sins that have weighed them down all week, that as they come to this table and they lay them behind, that you would remind them that in Christ, every sin has been paid for. Would they know that deep in their souls? So God, we thank you for this table. We pray that we would Take it in a way that pleases you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.